uh, he warns that something like this is going to happen. You can't just keep tweaking Washington's nose and saying all these uh, defiant things and not have repercussions. And so putting that one out took, took a long time. But what was nice and what I praise Bernheisel for is something that most people don't even know. The way that the Utah war ended was Bernheisel went behind, you know, he is sit sitting there having no luck with James Buchanan, trying to, to get him to negotiate with the Mormons. So it's a, it's a two-way street. And so he goes to Congress, he goes to the press, and he forces him to send a delegation. And that's what really ended the Utah War, is that an official delegation came to Utah in June of 1858. They sat down with Mormon leaders and listened to them scream for a full day. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And actually, Bruce doesn't even know this. It is the first time that I've had an in-person, in-the-new-studio interview uh, for the Cultural Hall. So, Bruce, thank you for breaking the seal on that and for coming to my house, having you here uh, to be able to talk about not only all things uh, John Bernheisel, which you'll find out who that is. Maybe you don't even know that name. Uh, but also we're going to get to know you a little bit. So thank you for coming over and for being here. Well, I felt privileged to be the first. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully not the last. We'll see how this goes, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Bruce, uh, I want to know a little bit about you as a person. We're, Bruce has authored a book that we're going to talk a lot about in the second and third blocks, but give me an idea who uh, who you are, where you come from, your relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Give me all that kind of stuff. In 30 seconds or less? Yeah, <laughs> and the watch is out. Go. And no. here we go. Okay. Um, well, I uh, grew up in San Jose, California. Uh, I went to the public schools there. Okay. And when I was a junior in high school, I knew what I wanted to do for a living. I wanted to be an historian, and that's not the way it worked out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fate intervened. We'll try not to spend too much time on this, but sure. this, if you want to know who I am, yeah, no, I would here love it to comes. Uh, it turns out my parents knew me better than I knew myself and didn't think I'd survive doing that. So a neighbor of ours, who was a very close friend of theirs, uh, approached me and said, how would you like to have an internship at the place where I work? And he worked at a very large government uh, installation. Okay. And he says, you're going to learn to be a computer programmer. And that doesn't mean anything today, but this is 1971. Yeah, this is like the cards and the punch holes and that kind of stuff, We right? weren't that far yet. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, this is when a computer was the size of a football field and cost millions of dollars. Jeez. I was get, getting in on the ground floor of the computer industry and didn't even know it. Uh -huh. And all I cared about was, well, is this going to be fun? <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the way I was looking at sure. it. You know, what's in it for me? You know, he's handing me this golden opportunity. Uh, but anyway... Anyway, uh, he said, well, you know, you get release time from high school. Uh, as a matter of fact, this will count for some of your classes. Oh, I'm down yeah, with Yeah, I was going to say, and that's, <laughs> and that's all it took. Bruce was gone. I, I, I'm, I'm there for yeah. the opportunity of a lifetime. So I learned to become a computer programmer. And oddly enough, and this, if you want to learn about me, this is all you need to know, is that I found that as, as interesting as history. They don't seem to be related, mm -hmm. uh, but they really are. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this attention to detail. So uh, when they're not looking, I often tell my fellow historians that, yeah, you guys are just computer geeks, you know, with better social skills. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, yeah, I went off into the computer industry. We're now going to save time. We're going to push the fast forward button for 40 years. Okay. And I kind of wake up and say, now, what was I going to do? You know, and I did have a lot of fun. Was it a little bit of a, of a like a... You know, people will say kind of a midlife crisis where you're like, wait, is this all life is? What what did I really want to be uh, when I grew up? And now I have the, the latitude because life has treated you as such that you can start to explore passions or what? 
what life was, I mean, for through no fault of my own, I did very well in the computer industry. Nice. And so I did have an opportunity to retire early. And I'll just let you in one more thing. Uh, and that is in the computer industry, guess what you get to do? Every five years, you retrain yourself. Uh-huh. And I was at that point, oh, everything's changed. Uh-huh. Do I really want to do this? I decided, no, let's retire early. And what was I doing? Oh, yes, the historian thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I say, if I actually had a plan, I'd never do half the stuff that I did. <laughs> Uh, but I said, I think I'll go take some classes at the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I ended up getting a PhD in history. So give me an idea. How long ago is this? Uh, I graduated with my PhD in 2018. Oh, so this is real recent. Yes. And I, uh, yeah. And okay. so, so, so basically this whole Bernheisel thing uh, I've been working on for almost 10 years. Wow. So, uh, you know, I had to get a master's degree and an undergraduate degree. And, you know, and it's, it's just kind of strange. I'll tell you one other thing I usually don't tell people. Please. But during this whole time, I had uh, Robert Frost poem mm-hmm. about the road not taken. Sure. And I kept looking at that. And then I said, Robert Frost doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I can go back and take the other road. And so that, that's really, who, you know, who it is that I, that, that I am. And then as far as Bernheisel tripped over my shoelaces and just stumbled into this incredible story. Yeah, which I'm excited to get to. I want to pick up a couple other things within your life, though. Uh, first of all, that's a tremendous amount of courage to be able to essentially have a whole life, you know, not like l- a literal life, but a whole life and career and say, hey, I'm done. And now what is this other thing that I want to do? But I'd also like to know, like, your uh, like your interaction with the church. Are, are you a lifetime member? Where along the way did, did you pick up a, a, a spouse or family? Like, give me some of that that information. How'd you get to Utah? You were in San Jose originally. Okay. I was born and raised, or I was born here in Utah. Okay. We moved to California uh, when I was like nine. Mm-hmm. And I'm a sixth generation Mormon. And I come from the Mormon line uh, that didn't go to church. Okay. So uh, <laughs> it's in our blood. We just don't go. Got it. No, I just, I've, I've, uh, uh, I was active at one time and, mm-hmm. and people seem to be interested in that. Uh, uh, but no, it just didn't take. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I haven't been to church in so long. The, and please don't tell anybody because I don't want them showing up my door. Oh. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't have positive or negative feelings at all. Sure. I just, it's part of my ancestry and all of that. When you say it's six generations, who does that trace back to? Do you, you it, goes back to 18, it goes back to the 1830s to Richard Worthen in, okay. in, uh, uh, in England. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then, yeah. It's kind of a crazy deal. They come to America. They go. They're in Nauvoo. They wind up uh, getting chased out of Nauvoo. They're in winter quarters. The whole thing that's that's in the book. Uh-huh. You know, it is partly my my family history. Is that sort of what drew you to it? And then you sort of find Bernheisel along the way, or is it you find Bernheisel and then see that your ancestors interchange with it? It is the latter. Okay. Uh, and uh, I can tell you how I got involved with Bernheisel. And like I say, it was just crazy. Uh, nobody had ever written a book on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so uh, I, and the other thing too, that's going to sound a little bit strange. When I went to the University of Utah, it wasn't to do Mormon studies. It was to do ancient history. Mm-hmm. And I actually, uh, and there's a, they were going to have a PhD in ancient history and it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. So I was getting a PhD in American history with a minor in ancient history. Mm-hmm. And sometime we can talk about Libby if you like. <laughs> you know, <or laughs> we'll read Herodotus. But Perfect. It'll chase your, your Did your my eyes away. just gloss over? Bruce? <laughs> yeah, they did. You're saying, you're saying move on. No, but uh, so, yeah, I said, okay, I'll do American history and get a minor in that. Mm-hmm. And then what ends up happening is that I'm doing a paper in um, – uh, about the relationship of Washington 
uh, to the Native Americans in Utah Territory. And that's where I suddenly bump into Bernheisel because he's everywhere. Mm -hmm. He is the Utah's delegate to Congress, okay, and was during the 1850s, this very uh, tumultuous period. Says, oh, I wonder who this guy is. And so uh, I started doing some research on him when I read these little biographies that they have in these research materials. Mm -hmm. And they all said he came from old money Mm -hmm. and that he was an aristocratic uh, family. He grew up in great wealth. And then I do some more research and find out he grew up in a place called Loisville, which I can't pronounce. Yeah. Okay. That's in the backcountry of Western Pennsylvania. And he was a, and he was, he grew up on a farm. Hmm. And so why are the rich and famous going to a place like that? And then I did more research and no, his family was not aristocratic. He did not grow up with great wealth. They were penniless and came to America as indentured servants. Hmm. And so this story is getting more and more interesting. And there's no question that he was a member of the upper class. And so that's the first thing that I wanted to know. How did you do this? And at first I thought it was a, he was like a fraud. He was just putting on a show or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And there tur- were plenty in, in that time. Yeah. But the idea is this is actually part of the American Revolution. It was not only a rebellion against uh, the, uh, uh, the king. It was against the aristocracy. And this idea is to have social, political, and economic power. You had to have the right last name. Mm-hmm. In America, it's a meritocracy. And he's an example of that. He earned his way into the upper class. And I can tell you just real quickly about that. Yes, please. Because uh, uh, it's germane to why he is so valuable as kind of a uh, uh, envoy for the Mormons. Because mm-hmm. he does grow up on the frontier. He does grow up you know, in a farming community. He goes to the University of Pennsylvania and gets into the medical school, and he's so bright and does so well, he comes to the attention of somebody named Philip Physick. It makes no sense today, but he was the most famous physician in America. He was the physician for like Andrew Jackson, Mm. the family of John Adams. This guy knows everybody. Mm -hmm. He is the most uh, incredibly influential person, and he really likes Bernheisel. He thinks he's a great guy and gives him letters of introduction. And that's his doorway into the upper class. He actually uh, winds up graduating from the University of Pennsylvania, going to uh, New York, to Manhattan, and he's in the most uh, fashionable area of the city, and he has this upper-class clientele. But he's still from the frontier. Mm. So he's got both of these experiences that he has. And so ultimately, when he he joins the Mormon faith, uh, he becomes an excellent person to go back and forth between the people who run the country you know, who are the upper class, and he also understands the Mormons. So I often say he understood the Mormons and their adversaries better than the other under, ever understood each other. And that's, that's basically who, you know, who he is. He's somebody who lives in two different worlds and communicate between them. So uh, as we look forward to the second and third block here of this episode, we're going to get into um, Bruce has prepared seven or eight things that he finds to be very uniquely interesting about John Bernheisel. And so we'll get into those. We'll run those out. You'll be able to see those in the show notes for this episode. And also there will be a link for Mormon Envoy, the the book that um, Bruce has written. Uh, But before we take a break and go into that second block, the curiosity that I have is how did John find the church? That's an excellent question. That's what I wanted to know. Mm -hmm. I found out everything about Bernheisel except that. So we don't know. We don't even know when he was baptized. Hmm. He suddenly appears in the Mormon record uh, in Lower Manhattan He's going to a meeting of the Mormons, and he's being ordained an elder. Hmm. So I have a whole chapter. Chapter 2 just talks about why I think 
he became a Latter-day Saint. And so this, the, the, this, is, this is why I joined the church. This is what he was interested in. So I'll give you, you know, at least three things. That sure. Okay, number one was the Book of Mormon. He okay. took that very seriously, believed it was the Word of God. Uh, when uh, there's a, a point in the book where he is going back to Washington during the Civil War and says there hasn't been this many soldiers here since the Lamanites and Nephites duked it wow. out. So, yes, he does believe in the Book of Mormon. He does believe Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. And so he—so so this is this is very genuine, okay? He is interested in baptism for the dead. And if you're a doctor, you might understand why. Sure. Yeah, he's around death all the time. And then this is something that isn't quite as uh, current today or people understand, but the gathering of Israel. And this is what he talked about a lot, the idea that— the, uh, and this almost sounds kind of strange today. The end of the world is near. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's what people were preaching and believing, and that the world as we know it is going to be destroyed. And the Mormons are building these cities as a place of refuge, you know, where you, where you can go, become, uh, you know, a holy people and be fit to be cut up into heaven mm-hmm. the world's ends. That's what he was clearly interested in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so he's... he's uh, 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 you know, again, he's two people. He is part of this upper class, but he also grows up in this uh, in this other world. So, and I argue that he's a lot more like the common Latter Day Saint than that he really is. These upper class people that that uh, whose uh, status he's in uh, basically has earned rather than inherited. I'm excited to uh, share some of these. Uh certainly non-known facts to some people or little-known facts uh, to others about John Bernheisel. So let's take a quick break. Uh, When we come back in the second block, we'll start to tackle some of these things that you've sent us. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative Creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember, if you love the Cultural Hall, you'd like to see it not go away. You love listening to it week in and week out. Uh, these things do cost money. There is equipment and hosting fees and all the things. If you go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall is where you can make a monthly or a yearly pledge to help us continue to do this. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. It is the only way that you can see the videos that are recorded of uh, the different episodes. And spoiler, there is not a video of this particular episode because John, or I'm Bruce, not John Bernheisel. That would be a a miracle of science. Uh, Bruce is here actually in the studio with me. Now, Bruce, uh, you've lined out kind of these eight things about Bernheisel. And uh, the first one is that Bernheisel was a founding member of the Council of 50. Significant, but I know that not everyone even knows what the Council of 50 is. So maybe a two-part question would be, set the stage for what the Council of 50 is and why it's significant that Bernheisel was a founding member. 
Okay, the Council of Fifty actually started out as something very, very simple, <clears throat> and it wasn't even known as the Council of Fifty. It's uh, a group of uh, Mormons who had a settlement in Wisconsin, needed to move, and were trying to decide whether to go to Nauvoo or maybe someplace else. And some of them had s suggested the idea of going to Texas. And so Joseph Smith called whoever was in town together, says, what do you guys think about this idea? And he says, that's not a bad idea. Texas is outside of the United States. Uh, maybe we should look into this. Mm -hmm. So they put together just a, uh, a group of people to look into the idea of having uh, a uh, track of land in Texas be a new Mormon settlement, not just for these 300 people, uh, but maybe a new gathering place. Mm -hmm. And so Bernheisel was invited to be there. Now, I think one of the reasons for that was, first of all, he was uh, – uh, and by the way, at this point, he had moved from New York to Nauvoo and was living in Joseph Smith's home okay. as a confidant and friend. And, uh, and he has a very close relationship to Joseph Smith. And I believe in many ways they had a lot in common. They both came from this backcountry upbringing. They both aspired to be something else. And John Bernheiser was successful in getting a formal education where Joseph Smith was not. But I think there's more co uh, kinship there than people can possibly imagine. And Joseph Smith loved education. Mm -hmm. And he did want to have, and I believe he wanted to have Bernheiser be an influence on his family. So he's a natural to be on this council. And then what ends up happening is that the ambitions of this council just grow incredibly. They talk about, we're not just finding a settlement. We're, find, we're, we're going to be founding the kingdom of God on earth. You know, this is going to be where Christ is going to come. Mm -hmm. Don't quote me on that. That's not what they actually said. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, literally, it's, uh, the, the, it, it really just goes like crazy. And there's lots of discussions about where to settle. And they ask, uh, you know, uh, when Bernheisel pipes up, he says, I don't think we should go to Texas. And uh, it's kind of interesting is that it turns out that Bernheisel uh, at one point had been uh, uh, the family doctor to the family of Stephen F. Austin that had founded Texas. Mm. And so that's something I found out during, during this research. So he probably knew those folks. He says, they're, they're just going to come back into the, or they're going to join the United States, so don't do that. Mm. But uh, there's a very interesting thing that, that happens is that what they are trying to do is create this perfect society that will be like the United States, but it'll correct all the errors in the United States. They're even going to have a constitution that's going to have all the guarantees of the Constitution without any of these sort of uh, loopholes that says, well, the federal government can't interfere in the state when the governor of Missouri is driving you out of the sure. state. And so they try to write a Constitution, and it's too hard. They can't figure it out. And Joseph Smith produces a revelation that says, uh, ye are my Constitution, hmm. meaning that inspired men are going to be the Constitution. And I believe that was uh, meant to be Bernheisel because he later becomes the chief diplomat of uh, what becomes the kingdom of God on earth actually in the Great Basin where we are now. And the reason why we know so much about this is because it's only been in the last couple of decades that we've even had access to like the notes of the Council of 50 and being able to see that, or has that always been available? No, that's been the holy grail of Mormon <laughs> historians. And uh, nobody's going to accept this, okay? <laughs> uh, uh, I went down like everybody else did and said, I'd like to see the Council of 50 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And this person looked at me and says, we'll have that one day. And everybody else got laughed out. And I said, we will. <laughs> <laughs> and not long after that, uh, it was announced that we're being released. Mm. And so I might be stretching things, but I really think it was because of me. <laughs> <in my book. laughs> 
I told the editors of the of this thing. He says, "You know, I was the one that got you those." Yeah. You know, and they're saying, "Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah thanks, Bruce." <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks, Bruce. No, it was 2016 that they, they came out, and so I'm in the middle of writing uh, the stuff on Bernheisel. Mm-hmm. Originally, he was the. Uh, this comes out of my dissertation, mm-hmm. and so I have to go back and re- retrofit it all. But yeah, it was it was quite interesting. Some people were were disappointed because they were expect. I don't know what they were expecting, mm-hmm. but it's a fascinating record to read. You know, because uh, and it goes on not just over in Joseph Smith's period, but then it continues on into Brigham Young, and and it actually continues in Utah. And uh, Bernheisel, in many ways, is reporting to the Council of Fifty when he first goes to Congress. So it's a governing body, and they just didn't never quite figured out how to get it to work, and eventually they kind of dropped it. Uh, but no, it had high aspirations. Hmm. Uh, the second point that you bring up is that when Joseph Smith said, I am going like a lamb to slaughter, this, of course, when he's going to the Carthage jail, yeah. uh, that he was speaking directly to John per- Bernheisel, that is that is some assertion. I'd like to know where, you're, where you get that and, and, and where that comes from. Okay, from a letter of September 11th, 1854. Okay. John Bernheisel to George A. Smith. He's asking him about what happened in Carthage. And he, that is where the history of the church gets that exact wording, mm. is from that letter, because George A. Smith was the historian of the church. They're actually writing that. And there are a lot of other records. And I'll, now, now I'll tell you why, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, that's where that comes from. When you, when you read those words, uh, they're getting it from Bernheisel's letter. Now, why would we be saying this to Bernheisel? Okay, do we need to go over the background of the Nauvoo Expositor and all that? Or I mean, maybe it, it's worth just to keep everybody kind of along. Let's briefly kind Just of very there. briefly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's uh, 1844. Joseph Smith has a falling out with some prominent members of the church, and it's over polygamy, but I think it's other things as well. And so they go off and form what's called the Reformed Mormon Church. And so this is intended, and Joseph Smith has fallen prophet. And then they go and start a newspaper called the New Nauvoo Expositor. And the Nauvoo Expositor makes some explosive charges against J- Joseph Smith that is really stirring things up. And uh, some of them are true. Some of them I doubt are true. And some of them have been clearly taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Okay, the idea that Joseph Smith dis- declared himself a king, that's not understood correctly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's getting everybody upset. They think he's coming to conquer everybody. So... Joseph Smith orders it shut down and destroys the press. That makes things worse. And so literally people in the countryside are now arming for war. And um, the owners of the Nauvoo Expositor sue Joseph Smith or charge him with what's called riot uh, over this. And he is expected to actually go to the court in Carthage, uh, you know, to uh, face charges. And mm-hmm. he says, I'm not crazy. I'm not going there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's basically that. And uh, so this is a real standoff of what to do, what to do. And so he asked Bernheisel to go with Apostle John Taylor to negotiate with Thomas Ford, who has come to Carthage, to try to let's, let's not have, you know, something terrible happen here. Let's not have a general civil in, insurrections. And uh, if you read uh, John Taylor's uh, account of what happens in this negotiation, it really sounds like Ford is talking directly to Bernheisel because they're both gentlemen. Mm. Okay, so he has has this this demeanor. And John Taylor repeatedly says that if Joseph Smith surrenders, uh, you know, and come, comes to Carthage to enter a plea, I promise as a gentleman to you that he'll be protected. Now, that's John Taylor 
you know, say, saying that. But that, that was the idea, mm-hmm. is that he was making this solemn promise that Joseph Smith would be protected. So Bernheisel and Taylor go back and tell Joseph Smith, and he says, no way. Yeah. Don't trust these people. And so, and then people probably know the story. He leaves Nauvoo in the middle of the night and goes to a safe house in Iowa that very few people know about, and, but Bernheisel is one of them. And so Bernheisel next goes to Carthage, and he uh, actually talks to the captain of the guard and says, can you really protect Joseph Smith? He says, we got it. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. So Bernheisel does go and speak to Joseph Smith, and this is all documented. You'll sure. see this in the Joseph Smith papers. And he informs them of what's gone on. And I, I can't say that he encourages him uh, to, to surrender, but that this seems to be along with other people, his wife is saying he should surrender. Other people are saying, why have you abandoned us? There's lots of pressure there. But in the letter that he sends to, uh, uh, that, that Joseph and Hiram Smith send to uh, uh, Thomas Ford, they say, we have just received word from an associate of ours that uh, it appears that we will be protected. And so they agree to surrender. Hmm. So um, you know what happens. They head off to Carthage. Bernheisel is there. He's accompanying them. And when they get four miles from Carthage, the um, and so the whole idea. Let, let me just make sure this is understood. The agreement is is that he will go to Carthage, enter a plea, not mm. guilty. Here's here's my bail and leave. And he had done that once before in April, and that worked. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of pacified everybody. And it's, it's like it's not going to be announced that he's there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was the idea. So what ends up happening is that he does go to. Uh, uh, you know, he's heading to Carthage, up comes this uh, militia and says they're going to arrest him. In other words, they're going back on the agreement that Bernheisel has helped negotiate. Mm-hmm. And that's why he does go up to Bernheisel. And as Bernheisel says, look me full in the face and says these words. Mm. So, yeah. Jeez. You know, it, something that strikes me uh, in, in this conversation, n- names like Hiram Smith, no. names like Joseph Smith, certainly. Um, Those are commonplace names, but with such a big player that John Bernheisel was in this time, I I could walk into my congregation on Sunday, ask the question, who is John Bernheisel? Does anyone know? And I would almost definitely guarantee that no one in that room would know this name and this person. Why is that when there are so many other players? John Taylor is another name that in this time, you know, uh, Oliver Cowdery, all, all no. these different people. Why, why don't we know the name John Bernheisel? Excellent question. Okay. Here's what happens. Uh, John Bernheisel, uh, remember George A. Smith? Mm-hmm. He writes to John Bernheisel saying, we need an autobiography of your life. You're so important. Bernheisel doesn't answer it. So a, a few years later, we really need an autobiography of your life. We don't have anything here in the records. Bernheisel doesn't answer it. I believe there's another time where he's supposed to show up at the church historian's office to give a, you know, his story of his life. He doesn't show up. Hmm. And so you get all these uh, different instances where he's being encouraged to do this, and he doesn't show up. And I believe in part it was because of this incident. I mean, you know, this, I mean, how would you feel, you know, if, uh, you know, you felt like you were trying to save Joseph Smith and it blew up in your face? Yeah. So but maybe a guilt, a responsibility that— I don't think he liked to talk about the past. Huh. And so uh, I happen to know that John Bernheisel kept a journal, and everybody wants it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've been assured of that by no shortage of people <laughs> when I say, do they know about Bernheisel's 
journals is, no, we don't know what it, where it is. And then they reach across the table, grab me by the lapels and yank me right up to their face and said, if you ever find it, if you know what's good for you, you'll bring it here. You know, and I says, well, I got seven groups so far that want to kill me, uh-huh. you know, if I don't bring it to them, but nobody knows where it is. And I don't know if he destroyed it, but that's the other reason is there's no basic material. Mm. You know, it's so nice. You have this, you know, you have this diary to go under that gives you all the dates and times and places, and then you branch out. I'm having to go backwards mm. to do this, mm. which is why, you know, nobody's ever written a book, book about this guy because nobody's that crazy yeah. You know, yeah. to go through that work. So you wouldn't believe what I had to do to pull a lot of this stuff out. Well, I mean, a decade's worth of time. Well, yeah. And, and a lot of it is that he just didn't want, want to be known. Mm. And that may have just been part of his personality. It may have been because the past. I, I believe some of this had to be the past was kind of too, too, kind of sad. Sure. And kind of difficult for him. Uh, so, yeah, he just never cooperated. Hmm. Uh, the third point that you uh, bring up is that Bernheisel was the only person to become a spiritually sealed son to Joseph Smith in the Nauvoo Temple under the law of adoption, which seems like a lot of things that maybe we need to explain uh, what spiritually sealed, what law of adoption. Get Let's get into all that. Okay, this is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and it all depends on who's interested in this. How but, much fun it is? <laughs> well, yeah, the law of adoption was one of the last doctrines that Joseph Smith presented, and it was not made public. Okay, this was only a few people who knew about this. And it so was, it's not it's not anything that we read about in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not no. thus saith the Lord. It, it's so. How do we know about it? We know about it because of uh, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball who heard about it. Okay, and so they can tell us about it, and they do tell us about it. Except for one thing, they can't agree. Mm. And so uh, there was a time in which uh, prominent men in the church were adopting uh, other men to be their uh, to be their son. Okay, they're adopting them into their family. And so what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, nobody's been able to really really quite figure that out. So this is kind of a esoteric almost. If you get among Mormon historians who want to talk about the law of adoption, it's going to be loads <laughs> of fun, you know, because everybody has, has, has a different idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Wilford Woodruff said, look, we've never figured this out. Let's just stop doing this. Right. But the end of, but, you know, uh, Brigham Young had uh, several people that were adopted into his family, Hebrew C. Kimball and all these other people. Joseph Smith had one, and that was John Bernheisel. So what I believe is that that actually gave him a special standing, hmm. you know, among the other apostles. Bernheisel never became an apostle or general authority or anything like that, but there's no question that he had a had a special standing. And even with Brigham Young, who you know, suffered, <laughs> you know, who who had a tendency to tell you what he thought of you. Yeah. Oh, you really? know, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is, that is putting that the most delicate way that I've ever uh, well, heard. Well, that. well, I that's the thing that. is going through the the uh, you know a, a lot of the rest of Bernheisel's life mm-hmm. is serving in Congress. And having to put up with him, mm-hmm. you know, these letters that go back and forth between the two of them, you know, it's really quite interesting. But every once in a while, Bernheiser will tell him, you're out of line. Yeah. And Brigham Young, like, kind of apologizes. Mm. And you don't see that. No. You know, you're just not going to see that. So that's why I, I kind of put that down there is that I, I think it shows that they had a special relationship. So is the spiritual adoption uh, similar to, like, uh, the the ceiling that would exist in the temple or what what— like, what is the nuts and bolts to that? Okay, well, as, most, as much as we know. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's the idea that I can tell you literally, except I don't happen to have this memorized, but uh, it basically says that he will inherit 
uh, Joseph Smith's standing in the kingdom of God. Hmm. And so that's that's the way the blessing or whatever it is, the words that they use, uh, uh, you know, you know, purpose it. But like I say, there's lots of different, uh, uh, you know, interpretations of this. And it got to be a contest where uh, somebody wanted to be adopted into, I don't know, John Taylor's family and decided he could do better. So he's moving up to, <laughs> you know, let, let's get Brigham Young, Brigham I got enough already. So it became came kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, uh, everybody that I talk to, you know, people who are historians, whether they're LDS or not, at, at some point, they just kind of look at me and throw their hands up and say, <laughs> you know, you make something up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so I don't, I don't claim to know other than I, it, it clearly was, uh, I don't want to call it a status symbol because I think it was more than that. It clearly showed this relationship and what uh, Joseph Smith thought of, thought of John, John Bernheisel to invite him you know, to be part of his family, really, and to inherit all of his glory and all of that. Yeah. Let's take another break. When we come back in the third block, we've got some more things. We're clearly not going to get to all of them, Bruce. That's fine. Uh, But I'm I'm looking forward to learning more about John Bernheisel, and then uh, we'll get to know a little bit more about you as we wrap out the episode. We'll come back and do that in the third block of The Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer and they start at only $29 a month. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you love this episode, uh, consider sharing this with someone that you know, love, or that you know loves podcasts or shows available in podcast form. Uh, Tell them about the Cultural Hall. Maybe it's not this episode. Maybe you're just hearing this and thinking, oh, you know what, this other episode, share us with your friends is the point of what I'm trying to say. And if you feel even more so inclined, go ahead and wherever you get this episode of the Cultural Hall, take a moment and give us a review. It allows other people that are looking for the same great content that you have found to also find us, and it would really help a lot. And we'd appreciate it and uh, and I know Bruce would appreciate it as well. So, Absolutely. Uh, so as we learn more about John Bernheisel, uh, this one may be just a quick mention. Uh, you've written, after Joseph Smith's death, Emma Smith allowed Bernheisel to examine the manuscript of her late husband's new translation of the Bible. Okay, what that really demonstrates is that one of the ways that Bernheisel is a negotiator is it's between the Smith family and the new leadership of the church. Mm-hmm. Because Brigham Young sends uh, Willard Richards to go 
could to Emma to see if uh, he'll actually uh, or she will actually give him the manuscript in the new translation, and she says no. Yeah, and then without even asking, uh, you know, Bert Bernheisel is offered to to uh, she offers uh, to let uh, Bernheisel have the new translation mm. and to be able to read it. And so that kind of shows the trust that she has sure. and, and that it's a, a great, uh, why he becomes a great link uh, between uh, the church here in Utah and, and Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith's family. I'd like to also mention that the community of Christ in Independence, Missouri is also interested in Bernheisel because Bernheisel served as a tutor to Joseph Smith III mm. and uh, stayed close to him for the rest of his life. He lived in the Smith household until 1847, was really taking care of them and making sure they didn't, didn't get hurt. And so they have special fond remembrances of him. But I think what this demonstrates is, is mostly, uh, if you're interested in the new translation of the Bible, you should probably check out the Joseph Smith paper's explanation of what that is. Mm. Uh, Bernheisel copied about 40% of it, which is kind of significant. Yeah. Uh, so he didn't seem to see it as a book that's like the, the Book of Mormon uh, it, it seems to be a different kind of a production. And uh, it'd be, you know, if you're interested in that, I'd recommend you to, to the Joseph Smith papers. But it does show that link, which I think is important. Well, and it, also to me, I think that in the narrative that we create in our minds as, um, as members of the church is, Emma didn't, didn't go west, that's where that sort of ends, and there's no sort of bridge. And, and it seems like Bernheisel really is, like you say, that sort of bridge between the Smith family after the saints go west and... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as we go to number five, you said John Bernheisel warned Brigham Young not to publicize the official nature of polygamy, lest it incur the wrath of Congress. Okay, this was probably, outside of the Utah war generally, this was probably the biggest battle he has with Brigham Young. And uh, what he says is that uh, uh, he, he hears through the grapevine that there is going to be a meeting in Salt Lake City in which they're going to make a big announcement that, yes, we are, public, yes, we are practicing polygamy mm -hmm. and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. you know? And he says, look, Congress is going to see this as throwing down the glove and daring them to do their worst. Mm. It's going to cause nothing but problems. Don't do it. And Brigham Young just ignores him and it really infuriates him. And he goes ahead and makes the announcement, and not only does he do that, he sends copies of it to members of Congress and the White House. Mm. And he sends uh, Orson Pratt to publish The Seer in Washington, D.C., you know, and they have these big meetings. And he says, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're basically tweaking everybody's nose back here and uh, saying, ha, 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 we're out here in the Great Basin, you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And that is the way Congress ended up interpreting it. So this creates a nightmare for him because I don't think Brigham Young understood you know, all the ramifications of this because guess what the South does and the North does? Yeah, this becomes a uh, kind of a proxy battle over slavery. Mm -hmm. And so what hap starts to happen, for example, is that Congress passes a uh, uh, kind of a, a law that grants anybody who's been in the Great Basin, you know, in Utah, basically what becomes Utah territory, before it became a territory, we're just going to give them land. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, if you've settled there, it's yours. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that, that's, that's a great tradition, you know, uh, that, that you settled there, you build it up, yeah, you deserve to have sure. it, free of charge. And so somebody puts a proviso on there and says, except if you're a polygamist, mm. in which case you get nothing. Now that's put in there to tweak the nose of the South, okay? because that puts them in a terrible position. You know, if they say, no, take that out because 
if you can, if Congress can can put in a law like that, you can put in something about slavery. Right. They know that's what's going to turn up. If on the other hand, you know, uh, you uh, uh, you know, basically what's going to wind up happening is is that uh, they're going to have to. Um, Reconcile this with slavery is what it comes down to. You're, mm-hmm. you're basically saying uh, we approve of polygamy, so it puts them in an untenable position. Sure, that's what I'm. The words I'm groping for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, but at, but at the end of the day, that's that's what happens mm-hmm. for years. There's this constant until the until the Civil War. There's this constant going back and forth. Uh, he's being drawn into the slavery issue. We don't want to be there, and so uh, that's why he was uh, so furious about doing this. The problems that it caused. And it, and, and it did cause problems long term because he made such a big deal about announcing it. He says, look, just say nothing. Mm-hmm. They don't care if you just say nothing. You know, but because he made such a big deal about it, uh, now Congress, even after the Civil War, says you made a big deal you know, about your practicing poly- polygamy. You've got to make a big deal about turning it off. Yeah. And so that kind of led to these uh, pr- uh, prosecutions. Uh, of uh, polygamists, you know, uh, in the 1880s and 1890s and all of that. It just created, created a nightmare. Well, so, and it's interesting to me as you say that, I think of um, a, a more recent uh, occurrence where uh, it seems like the church made a big deal about a particular issue and then the government came back and said, all right, well, everyone can get married. And, <laughs> and, and there's a lot of people who have speculated that if there hadn't been such a push to say, no, you know, LGBTQ folks can't get married, you know, all that, you know, the gay marriage, that that can't be, that we would maybe still be in that process. But because such a stand was taken, that there had to be that opposition that was put into that. You tend to cause the thing you're trying <laughs> to avoid. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so... No, it's uh, when you see see those issues and polygamy. I mean, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, except it's a gift you don't want. You know, it's constantly being being thrown back in your face. Yeah, and uh, and then the idea that uh, uh, you know they they issue the manifesto and then well, it took a while for polygamy to ramp up. We're going to take some time to to ramp it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just caused endless problems. Mm. And so, and Bernheisel saw that, and and the letters that he sends back and forth. I mean, they're they're pleading with him. You know, saying you have no idea the problems that you're going to cause. Uh, quoted within your book are the letters, or the letters from Bernheisel to Brigham Young and Brigham Young to Bernheisel. Are those available in some sort of source that people can see? Yes, they are. Uh, they are in the uh, Brigham Young papers, Brigham Young office files, and uh, I can I've used them so much I could probably <laughs> tell you exactly the call number. Uh-huh. But it's called the delegate file. Okay, that's in uh, the Joseph Smith office uh, file papers, mm. and there's to, and uh, there, there's a ton of uh, letters there in, in in the Brigham Young collection, mm. uh, and they and they are fascinating. Yeah, you know, go, go, going back and forth uh, because you know it's it's very interesting. You know, the relationship the two have, and I get the idea. And then I've also been through what's called. Uh, Brigham Young office journals that shows who he's visiting. Mm-hmm. And when Bernheisel gets back to the Great Basin, you know, it has an entry in there. Um, Brother Brigham met with uh, Dr. Bernheisel for five hours. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say, the minutes, you have some well, minutes of these, yeah. don't you? Yeah. I probably know what they're discussing. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think I think they had, had, had it out a hmm. lot. Hmm. But like I say, at the end of the day, basically Brigham Young kind of uh, – 
you know, begrudgingly respects Bernheis. I believe he does. So uh, we have time to get to one more of these that you've prepared. So I'm not sure which one you want to, to go to. Well, I'll tell you what, let's just do the last one. Okay. Okay. So Bernheisel negotiated with every American president from Zachary Taylor to Abraham Lincoln on behalf of the Latter-day Saints. Okay. Here is Bernheisel's job in Washington. Okay. Bernheisel has this idea that, look, we need to negotiate with these people. We need to be reasonable. We need to compromise. We need to let the great wheel of time wear down uh, prejudice, okay? Mm -hmm. And if we're reasonable, we'll become a state. How about that? Mm -hmm. And Brigham Young basically, and I think for in many ways, it's kind of hard to be too sympathetic to him. After seeing the neglect of the federal government, he's mad. Mm -hmm. And so is everybody else. Sure. And so uh, he has every right to be mad. It just isn't a very good idea. You know, have we ever been in that situation ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> right. do, we, do we ever see where that leads to? Yeah, hmm. Yeah, hmm, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea. And that's what he's trying to tell him, and he's just furious. At one point, you're not going to believe this, but he actually says, look, it's time to let bygones be, up, but be bygones. Hmm. He actually uses those words. Really? Stop talking about Illinois, Missouri, and you're not going to believe the reply that he got. Well, you will believe it. I mean, he's, he, you can just see him screaming and says, never. Yeah. So, but that's what's causing the problem is that they're, they're not able to, to negotiate. They're not able to find their place in America. So he has a nightmare job. Brigham Young starts fires. He puts them out. Mm. As soon as he puts them out, he starts another one. So, and it just goes on and on. And the Utah war is part of that. Uh, he warns that something like this is going to happen. You can't just keep tweaking Washington's nose and saying all these uh, defiant things and not have repercussions. Sure. And so putting that one out took, took a long time. But what was nice and what I praise Bernheisel for is something that most people don't even know. Tell me. The way that the Utah war ended was Bernheisel went behind, you know, he is sit sitting there having no luck with James Buchanan, trying to, to get him to negotiate with the Mormons. So it's a, it's a two-way street. And so he goes to Congress, he goes to the press, and he forces them to send a delegation. Mm. And that's what really ended the Utah War is that an official delegation came to Utah in June of 1858. They sat down with Mormon leaders and listened to them scream for a full day, you know, about what happened. But this really changed Mormon history because what do you know? The Mormons have a chip in the game. Okay. Mm -hmm. They they actually have, have, have they can make a lot of problems. Yeah, you can destroy us, but it's going to cost you dearly. Yeah. Do you really want to do that? And so, you know, and then Washington, well, we will do it. <laughs> you know, maybe we should talk. Yeah. And so after this day of venting, and Bernheisel met with this delegation before they went. <laughs> and I think he warned him, look, this is what the situation is. Uh, the next day, Br uh, Brigham Young and the, the Mormons are far more reasonable. Because at last somebody listened to him. So uh, that's actually how, how this ended. Mm. And they were able to work out, a, okay, the army can come, but keep them 40 miles out of town. Uh, only officers can come in. Okay, we'll give all the cattle we st stole back. Sure. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and Brigham Young makes this incredible statement about how, well, if I knew these guys are going to be this uh, uh, nice, uh, they could have come in last spring as well as yeah. now. You know, it's kind of like uh, – uh, why did we go all of this fuss, fuss, and feathers? But that was Bernheis's job, you know, and he was doing the doing all this behind the scenes. Basically, was keeping the lid on until he could get both sides to talk together. And then, you know, the the basic argument is we we are got now going to abandon this escalating 
you know, conflict that is, is, is heading straight towards violence, towards a more pragmatic, uh, pragmatic uh, compromise and, and coexistence where the Mormons give something and the federal government gives something. And that goes down to Abraham Lincoln. And those are, that part is very interesting because mm-hmm. Honest Abe is, you know, always fascinating. Yeah. But the idea is that the way he deals with it, as they say, we don't like the government the governor you sent out, we want Brigham Young back. Okay, I'll get rid of the governor, but you don't get got Brigham Young back. You kind of like the secretary of the territory. He's now the governor. Yeah. Okay, end of deal. You know, and it works. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets them through this very angry period, and gradually the Mormons become, you know, basically typical Americans again. But I don't think that would have happened without Bernheisel kind of uh, you know, doing this nightmare job, keeping things from blowing up in the meantime. An instrumental figure in church history that I, I would dare say most people have no idea or haven't even ever heard the name. Uh, when people started listening to this nearly an hour ago, uh, probably thought that same thing. Who? What? Huh? And have now been able to just get a small sampling of who John Bernheisel was. Uh, Bruce, you've written a book that people, if they go to the link in the show notes, uh, they can be able to purchase that book. It's called Mormon Envoy, uh, and people can click by that. It's from the University of Illinois Press. So uh, a shout out to them and especially to Heather, who helps link us with great people like yourself to be able to have these discussions. Um, there are uh, There is a question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. So I would, in, I would ask you to interpret this however you may. Uh, the question that we ask everyone is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, well, I think I've already told you I'm not a particularly religious individual. Sure, but you may interpret it, you know, sometimes when we have people who are who are no longer active or who have never been members, they interpret that that faith to mean something different. So you are welcome to take that question wherever you would like. Hmm. I guess... I don't really have anything specific to say. I think what I'm trying to say is that, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I'm just uh, amazed at the kindness of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.